Hello and welcome to Let the Stone Speak. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology. This is produced by the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, a new institute here created in Jerusalem, Israel. Today we're going to be talking about the historic personality of Jonah and whether the narrative in the book of Jonah matches historical details as borne out in texts and in the archaeological record. And to do that today, I have with me archaeologist and writer of an article in the latest edition of Let the Stone Speak, our magazine, about this subject, Mr. Christopher Reams. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Brent. It's good to be here. So you've written an article uh, in the latest edition of Let the Stone Speak. I have a copy of of it here, the magazine. Uh, But your article is entitled, Is the Book of Jonah Entirely Ahistorical? And you start out uh, with a quote about Jonah from Wikipedia, a notorious uh, website that we tend to uh, rail on our students for doing any type of quoting of such sort from Wikipedia. However, it does bring out the general, uh, the general understanding, I think, well. And that's probably why you put it in here. This is what their, their page on Jonah says. The consensus of mainstream biblical scholars holds that the contents of the book of Jonah are entirely ahistorical. Many scholars regard the book of Jonah as an intentional work of parody or satire. If this is the case, then it was probably admitted into the canon of of the Hebrew Bible by sages who misunderstood its satirical nature and mistakenly interpreted it as a serious prophetic work. And as you write here, that's a brutal summary. And is it fair? Well, that's what we tackle with this article. And I think that Wikipedia quote is a great one because naturally it's Wikipedia. It's going to be the page that a lot of people naturally go to if they're doing a little preliminary research on the subject of Jonah. But it's a really important question. Uh, Number one, for, for the Jewish people, it's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Number two, especially for Christians, because there are, there are several verses in the New Testament where Jesus pins his entire messiahship on the historicity of the book of Jonah, uh, and important for Muslims as well. So that's a really, uh, that's, that's, that's quite the statement to come out and make, uh, fr- quoting these various scholars as, as that article does. So what I go through in this article is uh, we go through the story flow in the book of Jonah and look at the different pieces to see if it really is some kind of late uh, imagined narrative or if it does fit with the facts of Assyria and, and the geopolitics, shall we say, of that time period. Okay, so in biblical archaeology, if we're going to corroborate or correlate a biblical passage or biblical personality to a historical event, we talk about having the, making sure we get the right understanding of the right time, right place, uh, and the material means that should, should be there if we can prove such a thing. Can, maybe you can set up the, the time period and the setting of the book of Jonah as relayed in the Bible at first, so then we know how we can try and look at it in, in the archaeological record. Sure. Well, Jonah the prophet is mentioned, obviously, in, in the book of his name, but in one other part of the Bible, and that's 2 Kings 14, Uh, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And his reign is really well attested to. um, He, proof of his existence has been found, a a seal mentioning his name. Of Jeroboam. Of Jeroboam. Um, And his reign is generally dated around 800 BCE. And then he reigned uh, for, I believe, 40 some years uh, following that. So, So Jonah is mentioned 
within that reign in Second Kings 14. So we can, based on various pieces of evidence, we can put this setting of the Jonah account, the early or, or the middle first half of the 8th century BCE. So maybe 770, something, something like that. Okay. I always think it's very uh, funny, or not funny, uh, perhaps cruel in some ways, that this, this prophet Jonah, uh, the two mentions in the Bible are, the, are, are going to Nineveh, as you'll get to. And then this other account, when most of the time prophets, they are warning uh, a people to repent because of their wicked ways, and they're warning an Israelite people. And Jonah didn't do that. He warned the people, and the people he warned were uh, Assyrians, ancient Assyrians. But even the fact that in the book of Kings, he's got this message that he's going to a, an unrighteous king, Jeroboam II, and saying, no, God, out of his mercy, is going to let you prolong your reign. And so his, his prophetic mission was very different to other prophets. I guess we'll just stick with the Nineveh side of it uh, from now on. Um, Maybe you can just outlay the book of Jonah, the historical narrative, in case people are, are unaware of just the, the few events before we get to into Nineveh. Sure. Well, the, the book of Jonah is four chapters long. Um, the first chapter discusses God's calling of Jonah and what he wants Jonah to do to go and proclaim this message to Nineveh, uh, this message of warning, of impending destruction. Um, Jonah famously doesn't want to do this. He jumps aboard a ship to head the opposite direction to Tarshish. A uh, big storm blows up. And in chapter two, we read about how um, the sailors on the ship throw Jonah into the sea. Jonah is swallowed by a, by a, a fish, a whale, that then, um, that then spews him back up on land after Jonah repents while in the bed in the belly of the whale, and then Jonah agrees to go on this mission sent by God to Assyria. And then his mission to Assyria is described in chapters 3 and 4. He goes to Assyria, he proclaims this warning message to the land, and the story pro proceeds from there. So the, the, uh, a key point of the, the book that sometimes goes missed is why did Jonah want to run away? Why mm -hmm. didn't he want to accomplish this mission and take this message to Assyria? And then directly related to that is why was there this warning message to Assyria? Now, it isn't spelled out explicitly in chapter one of the book, but we can see and, and determine this reason from the later chapters of this book. Uh, God says that, that this destruction is coming upon Assyria for all the wickedness that they've done and the blood that fills the city. And you read one of the other prophets, the book of Nahum, he talks about Nineveh, the same city being the bloody city, mm -hmm. just covered in violence and bloodshed. And quite remarkably, that is what we find from ancient Assyria, from during the century, just before, just after, is a terrifying culture of bloodshed and violence that really illustrates why Jonah would want to flee from it. So the Bible, I think in numerous passages, um, the Syrians would end up coming down to Israel, take them captive, almost take the Jews captive shortly thereafter. Uh, are they unique in their, in terms of ancient empires, in their barbarity uh, and their... Um, their fierceness and what they would do to captive people. The Bible, you said, talks about how that they are the blood, Nineveh was a bloody city, 
and they had you know pretty pretty harsh weapons of torture and things like that. Uh, what does the archaeological record discuss about that? Well, it's interesting you put it that way because a historian, I believe, forty or fifty years ago, wrote that the actions of the Assyrians specifically had no parallel save for in modern times. And, mm. of course, he was writing about uh, what took place with Nazi Germany and the atrocities committed about, uh, with, with the Jewish people and with other, with other peoples that they, uh, that they conquered. So the Assyrians really stood out as this horrific, uh, horrifically violent, group of people. And you see that in a lot of the inscriptions that have been found relating to Assyria, a lot of the wall art. To name some examples, the, uh, one practice would be for them to skin their enemies alive and to line the walls of their city with, with the skins of their enemies. They would make totem poles out of the heads, beheaded uh, heads of their enemies. Uh, they they were big fans of mutilation. There's several depictions of people being hacked apart alive and then left left for dead. Um, people would be buried alive in mounds of their fellow citizens' heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there's a case of some conquered people, some conquered no, uh, nobles who were led through a city wearing the heads of their fellow nobles as necklaces around around their heads. Uh, one, one other individual, one other noble, Arabian noble, I believe, he was kept in a kennel with the dogs of uh, one of the Assyrian cities and left kind of outside the city with this kennel to right. guard the city. Just horrific, horrific culture of, of violence and bloodshed, and one that really goes to illustrate why Jonah wouldn't want to, right, to, want to fulfill there. this mission. Yeah. yeah, Jonah 3 verse 8 says, you mentioned this in your article, but it says, but let them be covered with sackcloth, both man and beast, and we'll get to some of this as well, and let them cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. And so there was specifically the violence of this people was something that, that uh, they, were, they were sinning in this way to a degree that other people probably weren't which is one of the reasons why Jonah went there. Perhaps we can talk about some of these other details. You, you talk about how in the book of Jonah, it's described, uh, Nineveh is described as a great city, and, sp- and particularly uh, it talks about that this is a city of three days journey. That's what it says in the book of, of Jonah. Obviously, if somebody's writing in, in the first century, they might not have as many details. Or if this, let's say the third century, whenever this fabricated book of Jonah was, was written, the satirical book of Jonah, um, does this match to what we've, is found from the eighth century of Nineveh that we know of? Well, this is a big question because three days journey, that's massive. What kind of ancient city could be like that? Um, now, there's a couple of things to note regarding this is... Um, a, a typical measure of, of a distance would be in a day's journey, mm-hmm. a day's walking distance. And I believe it's Herodotus talk, describes it as um, a day's journey being the equivalent of 20 miles or let's say roughly 30 kilometers, 20 miles. So three days journey would be about 60 miles or, or 90 kilometers. Right. Um, That's a long way. That's a long way. So to, just to, to give rounded numbers, about 60 miles, 90 kilometers. So another uh, typical ancient measure is to measure a city by circumference. Mm-hmm. So this 60, uh, the 60 mile or 90 kilometer length we should expect 
uh, from from this place is most likely the circumference of the place. So there's a couple of ways that this can be interpreted. The meaning isn't entirely clear, um, but but one one way this can be measured is by the outlying city mounds around Nineveh. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are four primarily that make up a kind of quadrangle around the general area of Nineveh. Um, and taken together, that equals about uh, a circumference of about 90 kilometers right. or uh, 60 miles. Um, then there's the testimony. So that's the archeo- archaeological kind of And this, this area today is, I think, nation Nineveh is by Mosul, right? In, in northern Iraq. I'm pretty sure that's really... Yeah, I think centered. so. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's looking at it purely archaeologically. Now, if we look at the uh, attestations of other historians we see exactly the same thing, precisely what is written in the, in the book of Jonah. You've got the testimony of the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, who, and he recorded that Nineveh was 480 stadia in circumference. And what is that? That's 89 kilometers. That's our 90-kilometer right. three days journey right there. You've got the testimony of the historian Strabo, who, uh, who's of the same century, 1st century BCE, he wrote that Nineveh was much greater than Babylon, and he says that Babylon's circumference was nearly 400 stadia, so about 70 kilometers, and so Nineveh's was greater than that. So you've got these repeat um, co- corroborations and confirmations right. that, yes, actually, this Jonah, is the Jonah size right. of... Yeah, this, this is the accurate size of, of Nineveh. So moving on with the story, we see this really peculiar um, uh, feature of the, the story is when they actually do repent and they, they turn to God, and, and briefly at least, um, and we have this, this idea of them actually putting sackcloth not just upon themselves as this ancient, ancient tradition or a sign of, of mourning and, and humility. Ancient Israelites would do that for themselves. They'll put it on. Prophets would wear sackcloth and, and repent in dust and ashes. But here we have in the book of Jonah this peculiar reference to them doing this to their animals. So if you're going around the neighborhood, Jonah would, and see, sees all the neighborhood dressed up in sackcloth too. Now this is a wild element, it seems, from Jonah's story, something that is very unique. Do we have some type of uh, related uh, material to this outside the Bible? Yeah, well, to this point as well, that, that same Wikipedia article um, quotes another historian saying this is just silly. This is satirical. This right. is silly in those words, saying that the animals were mourning. Um, and to quote from that passage, it, um, it, 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 Jonah relays what the leader said. He said, Neither let man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them be covered in sackcloth. And here again, you have the testimony from the 5th century BC historian Herodotus. Mm-hmm. And he writes about uh, another event entirely, but he writes that the people from this area, Asiatic people from the east, that... These weren't it, necessarily Assyrians, but it, it's a, a close to this century. Right. Close, yeah. And close to this time period and from the same general region of mm-hmm. the world that, that these people who had come to fight against the Greeks in, in the story that he was relaying, something occurred and that these people started mourning right. and they caused their animals, specifically their horses, to mourn as well. And they even shaved the, the hair from their horses, the, 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 the manes of their horses right. as part of this mourning ritual. So it's really incredible that here you have people 
from roughly the same time period, right. from roughly the same area of the, the world, causing their horses to mourn. And what's really interesting with this account in Jonah is that the inference is that especially the horses are mourning because Jonah talks about uh, beast, herd, and flock. So mm-hmm. herd and flock, that, that's more like cattle and sheep, right? So beast, that is generally inferred to refer to horses, and Assyrians were famous hmm. for their horses, horses all through Assyrian art. So most likely, uh, like the, the, that verse talks about, but let them be covered with sackcloth, both man and beast. So that reference not to herd and flock in this case, but beast. So it could uh, have been horses. So most likely horses. So, horses this, so this is um, fair treatment if Jonah's satire, so too is Herodotus based on this point. Right. At least. Let's talk about the political situation now because this is a mighty empire, mighty empire terrifying everybody else known for their warfare. And then we have Jonah going to them and they repent. And you say that there is this window of time uh, inside Assyrian history that they stopped going to war for a while as well. Maybe you can explain that. Sure. This is just the most incredible part of it i think part of the part of the story this this period so remember we're dealing with the around 770 maybe 770 to 750 for this time period this period is actually known as the period of stagnation Hmm. for the assyrian empire so it not too much is known about this period and understandably if it's a period of stagnation um so the, the, there's an important his, historical reference to what was happening in the Assyrian Empire, and these are known as the Limu, Limu lists or eponym lists. And what these are is a year-by-year listing of a lottery-drawn governor mm-hmm. and a single major thing that happened in the Assyrian Empire that year. So typically it'll be a campaign. And so these a lists, campaign of warfare. a campaign of warfare. So these lists go back centuries and centuries, covering through uh, entire swaths of Assyrian history. Um, and so, for example, uh, you've got uh, a listing, say, one year would be during the eponymy of Ashadan, king of Assyria, campaign against Gananti. Then the next year. During the eponymy of Shamshi'ilu, the commander-in-chief, campaign against Marad, then during this year. So this uh, is typically how, it, how, it, how so it laid out for most of Assyrian history. Right. There'll be some lottery-drawn governor to feature that year, and mm-hmm. then a campaign. Yep. So what's really interesting here is that uh, around, I think, 773, you have the reign of a king of Assyria called Ashadan III. So... Ashadan III, the first three years of his uh, reign, the eponym lists say campaign against so-and-so, campaign against so-and-so, campaign against so-and-so. And then for the fourth year of his reign, it says, during the eponymy of Aplaya, government, uh, governor of Mazuma, the king stayed in the land. Mm-hmm. So why was this the case? Sometimes a reason will be given. But here, no reason is given. This year, the king stayed in the land. Yeah, you write here this in your article. You say, this is remarkable. Each, every prior year for 41 years, without fail, Assyria's leaders had engaged in military campaign. 
but not this year. Something right. changed yep. after you've decades got, of, of war. You've got this swath of, of, of dates on the Limu list, campaign against, campaign against, campaign against this one, that one, the next one. And even beyond that, so that goes back 41 years, the reason why the king on that earlier 42nd side, year. 42nd year, didn't go to battle was because the king was an old man and he died that year. Yeah. So really, this could be counted far further back. But then all of a sudden, you've got the king staying in the land. Now, why was this the case? This is really interesting. And I think this, based on the dating, this is about 769 BCE when the king stays in the Mm -hmm. land. That fits right within our period of Jonah and his warning. Now, what's interesting is how the uh, eponym lists Continue. Yeah, what happens what, after that point? What happens after that point? Now, Assyrian kings don't last long if they're not on the campaign trail. Uh, there's There's got to be something wrong. And it seems like the pressure must have gotten to this king to go back out and, compa- and campaign. And so the following year, you have the following. During the eponymy of Kudarashur, governor of Ahazuhina, campaign against Gananti. So he goes on the campaign again the following year. And then the year after that, he goes on the campaign again. And then suddenly everything falls apart. The next one, during the eponymy of Inerta Mukennisi, governor of Habruri, campaign against Hatariki, plague. And then the next year, the king stayed in the land. And then things just start to compound upon themselves. Uh... And you have the king repeatedly staying put in the land. Uh, For the next five years, no campaigns took place. Uh, Several revolts took place. You had plagues taking place. Mm -hmm. And you even had an eclipse being noted in these lists. And to the ancient Assyrians, an eclipse was a, a really superstitious and troubling event. So reconstructing all of this, it seems like the king did, as Jonah relates, listen to him and and stay put and not continue this violence. Uh, But then perhaps things got too much for that king. The following two years, he went back out on the campaign trail. Perhaps God allowed him that much time to see what he would do. And then ultimately... It, it just all fell apart and the curses came. Uh, plague, 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 revolt, uh, eclipse of the sun, plague. Right. And so you, you really have the Assyrian kingdom stagnating at this point, which, which is just fascinating when you put it together as well with another reason for the book of Jonah right. and why Jonah was going to Assyria. And this is expounded upon by the historian Josephus. Uh, who says that Assyria needed to be stayed by God because he was giving the Israelites right. another chance to repent. And you read about that in Second Kings 14, right. and you pair it up with Amos 7, which also talks about this time of Jeroboam II. And Amos 7 says, this is the last time, God, it, it records God saying, this is the last time I'm giving the Israelites chance to right. repent. He was, he was withholding. Uh, the punishment on the Israelites through Jeroboam's reign time and time again. Um, and yeah, Jonah, as you said, was used by God to to get them to, to delay that as much as possible. Yeah, this is fascinating. I will say that if people want to read uh, just more finer points and get the quotes right from these ancient historians as well, they can go to this article. It's, it's at armstronginstitute.org, and I'll put a, a link to this. 
uh, in the show notes for today's program so you can have easy reference of it. I would like to just talk about a couple of things that the historians, or let's sorry, let's say the modern biblical scholars um, would say about this book and some of the critique they, they give to show that it is ahistorical as they would see it. And one, one part that they bring out is the fact that Jonah has the use of Aramaic uh, in it. Um, and it seems to be pretty early for the to be Aramaic for Aramaic to be featured if it was written sometime in the eighth century. Perhaps you can discuss what what you could say for that. Sure. Well, that might be the case if the entire book was written in Aramaic, which which was the the later lingua franca of the the time period, uh, of of later time periods. But what we see in the book of Jonah are only snippets of Aramaic, and specifically relating to the sailors in the book of Jonah, which is really interesting because the sailors would have likely been of more northern Phoenician origin, Mm -hmm. and it's from these areas that you've got the Aramaic language developing. So it would make sense for them of this time period to have been speaking Aramaic. Now, what's really interesting as well is that if this was indeed a later work, and especially if it had Aramaic elements, you would also expect Persian elements right. as well from, um, from from that period. And there's no Persian in this book. There's no Persian elements at all. There's no Persian words. And Jonah, you've got actually some very early uses of Hebrew in the book of Jonah, like the early term Anuchi instead of Ani. Um, various things like that that really point to an earlier date um, and and exclude a later date uh, based on the language. So probably the biggest thing that people have a problem with, um, the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed, or the fish in the Mediterranean Sea, is the historical, um, or whether it's possible, I guess, or whether it's hist- historically accurate to, to describe this incident where Jonah spent some time in the belly of a, of a fish, what can, you, what can you dig up about this for us? Sure. Well, we, we wrote a pretty fun article on this separately. Uh, for the Assyria article, we deliberately just stayed with biblical archaeology because, of course, biblical archaeology can't speak to, right. to, to this story in chapter 2 of Jonah. Um, but we can do some kind of fun research ourselves to see, okay, what, what of this is physically possible? And then it's important to remember as well that this event is spoken of in the Bible as a miracle. It wasn't right. a purely physical event. This was, this was by necessity a miracle and is ascribed to God's divine intervention as a miracle. So explaining it purely on a physical basis will will only get us part of the way. Right. But it will get us part of the way. Right. <laughs> so, so what I did with this other article, um, I think the title of it was What Was the Great Fish That Swallowed Jonah? Uh, is, is look at some of the options. What could this creature have been and what kind of realm of possibility, as far as we can see physically, could it have been? So I look at the... Uh, some of the main contenders, shall we say, the whale shark and uh, blue whale. And, um, and in the article, uh, I go through and see what could have been possible, really more discrediting those options because those are filter-feeding creatures. Right. And so they do have massive mouths, and they're known for their big mouths, and a human could fit in their mouths. 
but their esophaguses uh, are really quite small. And Jonah chapter 2 talks about Jonah being in the belly right. of the whale, which the belly is the abdomen. So distilling all the options down, really, we're left with uh, what I think is the best option is a sperm whale. And particularly because sperm whales do frequent this area of the Mediterranean as well. For example, for example, probably the only option of a filter feeding whale that could have physically swallowed Jonah into its belly is a blue whale. Even then it would have been a squeeze, but those aren't found in the Mediterranean either, whereas the sperm whale is. And sperm whales are just incredible uh, creatures that, that are known for swallowing sharks whole, squid whole. So a, what, 80 kilogram human would have been no problem. Uh, and there's various accounts of whalers throughout history who have been swept up in the jaws of mm -hmm. uh, of, a, of a sperm whale. And there are a couple of, couple of other interesting details potentially pointing to a sperm whale as well. Uh, there's one of the verses there in chapter 2 that talk about Jonah descending to the bottoms of the mountains. So this kind of brings up a imagery of right at the bottom depths of, of the ocean, continental shelf type thing, hmm. type of thing. And the sperm whale is actually known as the deepest diving of the large whales. They're known for hanging around continental shelves, diving really low. Uh, another point about it is that Jonah was vomited back up onto the land. And whales are known for, their, for being able to vomit, but especially sperm whales. And sperm whales, they, they vomit up a, so, a sort of substance known as ambergris, which used to be one of the most prized parts of, of the sperm whale, this kind of this, this, um, this strange wax-like substance that would be found in their bodies. So they could be harvested from within the whale after it was caught, or sometimes it would be found having been vomited up, just floating around on the water. And you can find huge examples of chunks of this ambergris that they've somehow passed through them, uh, vomited up, shall we say. So that, that very action kind of fits quite nicely with the fact that Jonah himself was vomited back up out of the whale. So there are a few little, little tidbit details like that that could be uh, best associated with the sperm whale. But, the, uh, but when it comes down to it, the, the, the most improbable thing is Jonah staying alive in the whale of right. the belly with without oxygen without whatever you want to whatever you want to call it that's where the miracle really lies we know that Jonah could have been swallowed whole by a species in the water that's what this article shows he could have been swallowed entirely whole entirely alive but the miracle lies in him staying alive in the belly and that's where the bible says the miracle is right. in is in right. God keeping him alive in the whale's belly. So that was a fun article to write, and I'd encourage you to read it. I think it was uh, called "Yeah, What Was the Great Fish That Swallowed Jonah?" Is the story really impossible? So together with this article on Assyria, that would be a, that would be one to go with it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we will link to both those in the show notes. People will be able to get to this article we've been discussing at length. And then also discuss some of the more gruesome elements of fish throwing up or whales throwing up uh, to, to show that this is entirely a plausible thing, at least in the details that God says weren't necessarily the miraculous events related to, to Jonah. Thanks very much for taking your time to write this article and discussing it with us, Chris. My pleasure. 
And if you would like to receive the Let the Stone Speak magazine, this again is available, available to you for free wherever you are in the world. It comes out six times uh, a year. And um, again, if you would like this, you can write your emails to letters at armstronginstitute.org. Or you could simply go to our website, armstronginstitute.org. And on the top there of the webpage, you'll see a literature tab um, or magazine. And you can go ahead and, and request your own copy that way as well. Thanks very much for taking your time to listen to us today. If you'd like to send us some feedback, you can use that same email address, letters at armstronginstitute.org. If you don't have any feedback, that's fine. You can just go ahead and watch our next episode coming to you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.